Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. On Commons People this week, Boris Johnson smashes through the red wall. Well, we did it. We did it. We pulled it off, didn't we? Where now for battered Labour? Obviously very sad at the result we've achieved and very sad at those colleagues that uh, lost their seats. And will Brexit really get done? I urge everyone to find closure and to let the healing begin. Hello and welcome to Commons People. I'm Arj Singh. Joining me this week is Paul Wall. Hi Arj. Hey Paul. We've also got Rachel Wearmouth. Hello. Hey Rachel. And we've got the Tory MP for North East Derbyshire, Lee Rowley. Hello. Hey Lee, how are you doing? I'm okay. I'm glad it's over and looking forward to getting going. Yeah, is, it, co- is it Rowley or Rowley? Um, either. I answer to anything. <laughs> <laughs> Don't tell the whips that. <laughs> well, Boris Johnson, of course, won a stonking mandate in last week's general election, getting a majority of nearly 80 after winning Labour heartlands, which haven't turned blue for decades, if ever. Let's listen to the Prime Minister's message for those ex-Labour voters who backed the Tories. Your hand may have quivered over the ballot paper as before you put your cross in the Conservative box. And you may intend to return to Labour next time round. And if that is the case, I am humbled that you have put your trust in me and that you have put your trust in us. And I and we will never take your support for granted. Paul, were you surprised at the result? Yeah, I mean, you've got to be honest, the, the scale of it did surprise me. We did a little WhatsApp the night before, didn't we? And um, and I thought it was much lower than that. And, and yet I, I covered my myself by saying Labour MPs are saying it could be 80. So yeah. I was so pleased that actually the Labour MPs got it right, but I didn't. Um, <laughs> Let's, but, shall we just, it was eight. <laughs> I said eight. And I said add a naught because that's what Labour MPs are saying. I, I genuinely was surprised because I thought... Uh, the, the narrowing in the polls in the last sort of week and a half or so had sort of repeated that sort of a little bit of what you'd seen in 2017. So I thought while the Tories would get a majority, I thought it'd be smaller than that. Um, but I was completely wrong, obviously. And it, it, which just goes to show, you know, we're not in the predictions game. We shouldn't be. Um, we should have learned by now. But I, I thought what was amazing, and you saw when uh, all the new Tory MPs were with Boris on, on Monday night in, in Westminster Hall, 109 of them, that really brought home the scale of what a massive victory it was. And you've got to give massive credit to not just Boris Johnson, but to Isaac Levido and to Dominic Cummings, because Cummings had the strategic genius to work out this is going to change British politics forever, this referendum. So point one, he was absolutely right in 2016. And he followed through, didn't he? He he was the one who was more in touch with the British public than commentators, than pundits, than MPs. Uh, and, you know, credit's where it's due. Yeah, and they were singing Oh, Isaac Levido in, yeah, to the say, tune yeah. of Seven Nation Army in a kind of mocking uh, chant of against Labour supporters who sing that, of course, for Jeremy Corbyn. Uh, Lee, you were a Red Wall pioneer. You won your seat 
for the Tories in 2017 for the first time for the party since 1935. How has the party won over these seats and how does it keep them? Well, there's about five of us, about half a dozen of us in uh, 2017 that won. And I think we're, we've started the journey a bit earlier. And so some of my colleagues who've arrived this week, they have that journey to go. And it's a fantastic journey to go on because you, you know, you get to be able to go. It's my hometown, my home seat. And you get to be able to get really involved in the community. You get to prove to people that they're you know, potentially natural reticence to the Conservative Party. They haven't voted for us for a century in some cases or beyond that actually we, you know, we don't turn up and eat children, you know, that we, 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 can, we do have, we are. <laughs> vaguely house trained and you know and that we can you know that actually we want to get stuff done for our communities and you know there's going to be a lot of people across the country now who are waking up with new Tory MPs and it's for my colleagues to demonstrate what we can do because a lot of those guys may have lent their votes may not be fully convinced you know there's a lot of people who didn't vote for me in 2017 but came over in 2019 and I think there's a great opportunity there but we've got to deliver we've got to do stuff and do you think it's just Brexit related no, this I shift. don't. No, I don't. What do, what do you um, think is behind it? I think there's a long-term change that's going on. I mean, I grew up in my seat, and um, my seat was 62% Brexit, but you could see them disconnecting over 20 years from the Labour Party. They used to weigh the Labour vote in my... It was 18,000 votes, I think, the majority in, in 1997. Yeah. And you could see that disconnect over a long period of time. And I'm not convinced that the Labour Party, the early noises from the Labour Party, really understand that you know that there's a whole set of values which i think Labour party are disconnected from and i hope they 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 understand that because we need two strong parties that can actually have that debate about where the country's going wow you've won so much that you're now <laughs> wanting labor to uh, improve <laughs> <laughs> we need strong opposition no yeah not too strong of but course strong opposition. of course um the tories have made serious gains in labor former seats in the northeast as well which has become kind of totemic in this election how yeah. did that happen I think it's, uh, like Lee says, it's a longer story than people realise. I think in terms of the, the campaign, um, Theresa May should probably get some credit as well. Like The, the Conservative vote went up when um, when she was Prime Minister. They had a lot of data from around that time, which they were able to use at this election. Um, so the, the ground campaign was a bit better. I think in, in certain parts of the North, um, George Osborne's Metro Mayor's plan has had that's kind of diversified the political landscape. If you look at like somewhere like Teesside, they now have a Conservative Party mayor, which never would have been the, the case um, in years gone by. And I think that's had an impact because, like you say, that changes people's perceptions of the party. Um, but one thing when I was working up there in County in County Durham and in the northeast is I used to hear it all the time. You know, you could put a red rosette on um, a donkey here, and it would and it would be elected. And that kind of did change over time from being like something that they'd laugh about to something they felt quite bitter about actually um and i would say that sort of it was also like a tale of labor party failures this election as well when you i heard from a lot of people that the ira came up like more just as often as brexit uh, obviously brexit had a massive impact but it was also like jeremy corbyn's perceived lack of patriotism um and i think that if you look at a lot of these communities they're kind of ex-mining communities a lot of there's a lot of ex-forces in there as well um and i just don't think that jeremy corbyn resonated with them as a as a leadership figure and i think that's really interesting because a lot of it is not just the politics of patriotism that's certainly one thing you didn't have but the politics of people call it the identity politics but it's bigger than that it's sort of politics of place really isn't it it's about being rooted in a community and there was a feeling that actually labor just as he had in Scotland, had ceased to be connected to communities that with massive safe seats. And the danger for Labour is obvious now, which is, are they going to see the same 
impact that the Scottish referendum had when you just got a, a swathe of Labour seats where Labour had t- t- literally taken them for granted, the rosette point. Um, taken them for granted for years, and Gordon Brown shares some real responsibility for that as well. Um, and as a result, if you don't look after those communities and you're not in touch with them, that's what's happening with Labour in the North. Um, you know, they took a lot of these MPs, as we sat around this podcast before, they're not used to campaigning if you're in a safe seat. They go and help out someone else in a marginal. And that, that mentality um, has been ripped up in this election. I think in many ways that's a really, really good thing. If, if every safe seat can now become treated like a marginal, then there's more respect for the voters and more respect for the process, I think. I don't know. I mean, yeah. Well, people, I think voters rightly expect more than they did 20 years ago or 30 years ago. And maybe that's part of what the Lib Dems did through pavement politics and all the rest of it. But there is an expectation now. You get stuck in, you try and advocate for your area. And you don't just do it in a way where, you know, oh, I'll just ask a question in Parliament once every three months and then that's enough. It is actually trying to influence where the communities go. And, you know, my experience over the last seven, well, I had a Labour opponent for most of the last two years. And, you know, we were trying on our side, we, we didn't do everything perfectly, we made mistakes, you know, and all the rest of it, as you would expect, but we were trying to actually sort out some of the big issues that were were, were happening in Chesterfield and North East Derbyshire. My, my Labour opponent made a decision that she just didn't talk about any of that stuff, because she was busy chatting about all this, you know, whatever, I don't need to do the political stuff now, but you know, all the massive stuff that was in the, in the, in the manifesto. And people want to know what you're going to do for their community. You know, my, my biggest community is 25,000 people and they want to know what it's going to look like in five years' time, how we're going to improve it, what, what the changes are going to be that influence their lives. And I think you've got to have some answers to that. And if you don't, you're not going to connect any manifesto with how it affects communities. And how do you think Boris Johnson turns that kind of local strategy into a national strategy to win in 2024, how does he hang on to these seats? As he said, he wants to do and he wants to repay the voters who backed him maybe for the first time. We've got to deliver. I know that's a sort of bit of a political phrase, but we have. I mean, I said to North East Derbyshire in 2017, I'm going to focus on three things. We're going to try and stop overdevelopment. We're going to have houses. We're going to try and stop fracking. And we're going to try and solve some congestion issues which have been there since I was a kid. And we've done one of those. We've stopped fracking and we're working on the other two. And I think my colleagues should work out what they need to focus on. They'll know that. They're MPs. They're representing their communities now. And just be relentless at doing that. But also realise we haven't just... communities haven't just changed MPs to do the same thing but with a different rosette on. We are there because they have chosen to go a new way and um, we need to be clear that we're standing up for our communities that we're wanting to make them better and all the rest of it but we are not just people who switch rosettes from red to blue. We're not just going to be there to shout for all the money in the world we want reform, we want change, we want to actually have the conversations that we need to You know, where where will be my, my biggest community in the next 20 years with automation, artificial intelligence, machine learning, all that kind of stuff which has the most minuscule of conversations in in national political debate let's have that conversation now rather than just you know falling back into the sort of rather trite um stuff which we've seen over the last 10 or 20 years yeah you've been massively successful you you mentioned it there in your fracking campaign uh you got the commitment just before the election how important do you think that was We, we were super pleased i mean i um i 
honestly, I didn't have a huge amount of knowledge about fracking until I was selected and then elected. And we had a f local issue with fracking in, in the northern part of my constituency. And the more you looked at it, the more you knew it was just not going to work. And, you know, I took a decision that I was going to diverge from the party line. And we have relentlessly over the past two years highlighted why there is a conservative reason why you should not frack. And we were so pleased when the decision was made. And I think people appreciate that kind of stuff where you're willing to stand and say, we're not sure about this. We need to think again. And, and yeah, it's fantastic that it's, it's happened. And hopefully now we're not going to get some massive rig at the top of a, <laughs> a hill next to a thousand, a thousand people in a village. We, we definitely better not. Yeah. <laughs> You'll be gone. I'll be, I'll be laying down on the road next to it. I mean, it I mean, you came straight into Parliament and started that campaign, went against the party line. Do you see yourself kind of, you're obviously not afraid to stand up to the leadership. What's the next big issue for you, do you think? I don't go out seeking fights no, but course, just but. as a but I, I I just there are only two things which I've thought over the past two years I can't be supportive of and you know you know let's be honest in politics you agree with about you know a good you know a major, vast majority of what your party does but there are always things which you aren't that sure of and all the rest of it and that's just you know natural grown-up mature politics but I thought on the May deal and I thought I'm fracking that I couldn't support it and I think and I didn't go out of my way to choose something to disagree on but they were just wrong for my community and I was willing to stand up but I'm not I'm not looking for something to rebel on I'm you know but we will do what good MPs hopefully do which is make a judgment of everything as it comes along and I'm really pleased with where Boris is going junior minister in the making isn't he mark my words yeah. <laughs> I want to just give him a parallel universe scenario in which May's deal got through and then we had an election I don't know soon after let's say around the similar time or in spring next year do you think she'd have won as big a majority well, I think good politicians are supposed to say they don't deal in hypotheticals right <laughs> <laughs> I don't know I, you, I mean, you probably know the answers that I I, I I sort of voted against it three times because I thought it was wrong, and I and I thought it was wrong in principle. I just didn't think that the the backstop was quite right, and the political declaration was quite there. But I did obviously have a political consideration, which was whether it would work for the party which I've you know been part of for twenty years and the values which I'm trying to espouse and the way where I think my party will build a better Britain over time. And I was fearful of you know the the ch the chance that we were giving up on that, but. You know, we are where we are, and I'm but glad we got there. I think it's an important point, actually, because I think the whole genius of Cummings' election campaign was it was based on the hypothetical. The hypothetical was, we haven't delivered Brexit, we want to, let us deliver Brexit. The other guy might not deliver Brexit, hypothetical. Um, so what? there's your choice. And I thought, actually, if, if Brexit had been delivered, you would have seen a, a smaller majority because it would have been slightly out of the way for a lot of voters. They wouldn't have had that anger. Um, say there's say there's an election in fantasy politics next spring. If Labour hadn't gone down the route that the SNP and Lib Dems had, you can just imagine the majority would be smaller. There would be some red wall seats. Definitely, I think there would definitely be a Tory majority because all these other issues about Corbyn and leadership would come to the fore. But it, you know, would we be looking at a majority of thirty rather than eighty? I don't know. Um, but as Lee says, it's it's for the birds, no, it's academic. But I do think hypotheticals matter, and I think this genius of the campaign was based on a hypothetical what would happen if Jeremy Corbyn got in um, and you know what would happen to Brexit if Jeremy Corbyn got in and yeah. that was hypothetical especially because everyone actually thought Cummings would go for a, a, an election after Brexit yeah. to get rid of well, at one Farage point, he was Brexit. thinking of it apparently so <laughs> he changed his own mind but um, anyway uh, anyway the flip side to the Tories huge victory last week was an utterly dismal night for Labour 
The party suffered its worst defeat since 1935 and is now in full civil war mode as it tries to find someone to replace Jeremy Corbyn. One of the key moments on election night was seeing Labour former Home Secretary Alan Johnson ripping into Momentum founder John Lansman. Let's have a listen. I don't live in London. I live in Yorkshire. I live in a working class community. And I've known John for many years. John's been around, you know, from the Benite days. And I'm afraid the working classes have always been a big disappointment for John and his cult. Corbyn was a disaster on the doorstep. Everyone knew that he couldn't lead the working class out of a paper bag. Now John's developed this momentum group, this party within a party, aiming to keep the purity. The culture of betrayal goes on. You'll hear it now more and more over the next couple of days as these, this little cult get their act together. I want them out of the party. I want momentum gone. Go back to your student politics and your little, you know, left-wing... Paul, where now for Labour? Well, I've just been to Tony Blair's uh, speech this morning um, where he, boy, did he rip into, you know, uh, the left and Corbyn, as you'd imagine. That's not a surprise. But what was interesting about it, it was coming away from it, was talking to the young reporters. And it made me feel really old, having been around Parliament since the late, late 90s. A lot of young reporters who'd never seen Blair before said, God, he's good, isn't he? <laughs> and they, they, you know, they don't know about Iraq, they don't know about anything. It's ancient history to them. God, that guy's good. And he was good because he encapsulated Labour's, you know, history in, within a few sentences. And he came up with a brilliant metaphor. He said when that exit poll dropped on, on election night, it was like a flash of lightning that clarified the entire political landscape and you could see things clearly. But that flash of lightning only happens in a short period and we could soon go back into darkness. And, he, and it was a brilliant metaphor about what Labour's got this very short window now to make its mind up. Uh, and as far as it looks so far, it looks like, you know, they're, they're definitely going back into the darkness. I mean, you know, a lot of Corbyn supporters will be th- saying, well, Rebecca Long Bailey's the solution. We've got to just keep going. We just need a different salesperson, etc. Um, Blair was obviously not in agreement with that. And it reminded me of something that actually Lee said to the Prime Minister, to Theresa May, in that famous meeting of the 1922, and he said, stamina is not a strategy. And he was absolutely right about Theresa May. It's quite a ballsy thing for a young backbencher to do. I was quite impressed. But um, that's exactly what the whole of the PLP was shouting at, at Jeremy Corbyn and at the Corbyn continuity agenda. Stamina is not a strategy. Um, and as Lee was talking about his majority, I looked up his his seat. is a classic seat where Tony Blair delivered. Look at the statistics. It wasn't just 1997. In 1990, Harry Barnes was the old Labour MP. I remember him. Um, Harry Barnes, yeah, 97, got an 18,000 majority. 2001, he got a 12,000 majority. In, in 2005, he still got a 10,000 majority. Post-Iraq. Massive, massive majority, even after Iraq. And then Blair goes and the rot sets in. 2,000 majority in 2010 under Gordon Brown. And then you get Natasha Rengel in 2015 squeaking with 1,800. And then in 2017, Lee comes in. You can see the pattern. And Blair's point today was, look, I connected with these working class communities. I had something to offer. And he talked about things like, he said, um, you know, a good day's work should mean that, that kind of thing. Um, People want to earn their way in the world. And he was talking the language that's... He wanted to dispel this myth that somehow... Labour, under him, the rot had started, and he's being absolutely clear the rot started under Brown and then under the Miliband. Uh, and he's obviously clear in, in making sure people don't rewrite history. And if you look at lots of seats like, like that marginal seat, what was, you know, briefly a marginal seat, they were, under Blair, big, big majorities. 
So, Lee, given that you want a strong opposition because it's good for the country, which Labour leadership candidate do the Tories fear the most? And answer honestly and don't no dirty tricks <laughs> together. <laughs> wow, what a question. Um, I, I don't know the answer to that. I mean, you know, the, the, there is... We don't know who's running yet. We haven't heard from them. And, yeah, I, I, mean, I, was, I was reading about what Keir Starmer said on the Today programme this morning. And, you know, Keir Starmer is basically, by the looks of it, about to run a Corbynism without the Corbyn campaign. I mean, some of the things that he was apparently saying this morning, which was, you know, we oversteered in 2010 on cuts. You know, that that is a massive either deliberate misunderstanding of what was going on or a desire to fight the last last war but three. You know, I mean, it's it, it, it's bizarre that, that you're ending up there. And, you know, I, I, I'm not the best person to talk to about internal Labour Party politics, but my family is previously Labour. You know, my, my aunt used to work for Scargill at the NUM. She canvassed for Tony Benn in the 84 Chesterfield by-election. I feel still historically Labour from my family, but we've all switched. And we've all switched because we, you know, some of us switched before Blair, but, you know, we just think the Labour Party have gone off in a direction which is weird and they show no sign of coming back. And, you know, they'll have to work that out themselves. Is Starmer not doing a kind of uh, I'll win the membership and then pivot to the centre strategy? It sounds like that, but there's a lot of anger. I mean, in Blair's speech this morning, he was clearly having a pop back at, at Starmer because he, you know, a lot of that was targeted not at the left. It's at the people that Blair hopes can rescue the Labour Party. People like Starmer, but it sounds like, as um, and former MP Tony McNulty tweeted this morning, that Starmer sounds like you know um, a, 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 a very pale imitation of Owen Smith, which is the most damning thing you <laughs> oh can say. Ouch. I mean, you know, and if Starmer genuinely great podcast guest, though, <laughs> if if Starmer, yeah, he is. Uh, if, if if Starmer really is trying to say, look, I'm a soft left candidate, then I think the. Blairites, if for want of a better word, you might say even the voters might just say, actually, that's not what we want. We've tried that. Now, I can see the strategy and I can see Lisa Nandy, obviously, who's quite eloquent um, performer and actually, to be to her credit, has got the small towns agenda. You know, she's got the credibility of having talked about this stuff. It's not just since the election defeat. Um, she says we need to be in touch with Brexit voters and working class voters. Um, I can see what their strategy is. She's much more left than Starmer, you might say. And they've got to win the membership first. But, yeah, I don't know, I can't, it's very difficult at this stage to see either of them beating Rebecca Long-Bailey. Um, it really is. I did, did bump into an MP last night, though, who came out of the PLP who said, God, that was cathartic. But they then realised that that's not enough just being cathartic, having a rant at Jeremy Corbyn is nothing. Uh, and, and this MP said to me, I said, so who are you going to go for then? And they said, we've got to be bold. We can't bumble along five years the same way we got. And I said, what does that mean, being bold? And I said, Jess Phillips? And they nodded. And I thought that was really interesting. There's, Phillips has got that sort of shock factor, which is this is completely different. I'm going to tear it up. She's got lots of negatives, obviously. And, you know, I don't think it's a sexist thing to say. People might say it is, but a lot of women MPs are saying, why is she so emotional in the chamber? Why is she emotional on TV? She's like she's on the edge of tears when she should be just making a point. And I think that could be damaging. Yeah, what have the early skirmishes been like in this leadership campaign, <laughs> touched on it a bit. Yeah, I think you've got to sort of look at every Labour MP at the minute and think that everything that they're doing is membership-facing, isn't it? It's kind of not necessarily the the what will be the political reality for the public when whoever is elected next. Um, I think you've seen, it's already seen, for example, Caroline Flint um, accusing Emily Thornbury of calling her voters stupid. Um, that's kind of her 
taking a pop at people who uh, proposed a second referendum during the election campaign. You've seen um, briefings against Rebecca Long-Bailey's team saying that um, Carrie Murphy has started to run her campaign, which was furiously denied. Um, but it's, it's all about a blame game at the minute. But I think what worries the most is that the membership doesn't think there is any blame to be placed anywhere and that, you know, everything is, is fine, everything is normal. And what do you think would be best for Labour, doing a late leadership campaign as soon as possible or, or waiting a little while? There's a bit of a battle going on, isn't there? Um, I don't know. I think, that's, I think that's hard to say. You would think if there was going to be a moment of change that the, uh, the election would have would have heralded that but the problem is Tom Watson swanned off didn't he before the election <laughs> so they don't have a deputy leader who could at normal in well, normal terms times a deputy leader would step in and would oversee a sort of you know a, a post-mortem and then have a leadership election they don't have that luxury um, I've heard rumblings about Emily Thornberry because she's shadow for Secretary of State that but some people are a bit annoyed that she didn't have a go at that but obviously she's going to be a candidate so yeah, I think that's, that would have been difficult yeah. but the, the, the difficulty is they just don't have much time I mean Blair was saying look, we, this is much worse than 1983 in 1983 we thought we could come crab-like back and that, that took forever that, that, that was our second defeat this is our fourth defeat we don't have time for a long slow march back he was saying because he said if we do we're finished and he was actually hinting that if Labour does go down this route there will be another political party he was you know and I said to him I said well you talk about that but Chris Leslie lost his deposit you know, there are three MPs who lost the deposit who were sitting MPs in the last election, which is an amazing thing to think about. They were MPs. They didn't even get enough votes to win their deposit back. And Chris Leslie was one of them because he stood for the Independent Group for Change. Labour, for all its faults, won 10 million votes last week. The Tories won 13 million. And because of this electoral system, you've got this massive skewing. But 10 million, you know, that's a party that still can attract 10 million votes, even in its worst situation. So I don't know quite sure what Blair means when he is hinting that there will be some realignment, some brand new party. We have, we found out surely in the last year that forming a new party is bloody hard. The genius of the ERG was not going off and joining Brexit party. It was reforming the Tory party and shifting it. Um, the genius of the trots was realising you've got to infiltrate properly in the Labour Party to get what you want and then, boy, they're embedded. Creating a new political party in Britain is hard, and I'm not sure Blair gets that. I don't know. Um, the, the first thing in the PM's intray is, of course, Brexit. Uh, MPs will vote on Johnson's Brexit deal on Friday and start paving the way for a January 31st exit. But will Brexit really be done as soon as we leave the EU? Let's have a listen to Boris Johnson again. This one-nation Conservative government will never ignore your good and positive feelings of warmth and sympathy towards the other nations of Europe. Because now is the moment, precisely as we leave the EU, to let those natural feelings find renewed expression in building a new partnership, which is one of the great projects for next year. And as we work together with the EU, as friends and sovereign equals, in tackling climate change and terrorism, in building academic and scientific cooperation, redoubling our trading relationship, I frankly urge everyone on either side of what are, after three, years, three and a half years, after all, an increasingly arid argument, I urge everyone to find closure and to let the healing begin. Um, 
There was a bit of talk after the election result that Johnson could use his massive majority to tack away from the hard Brexiteers. What do you think? Well, I think what's really interesting about this election, and, and it'd be interesting to see what Lee thinks about this, is that whole phrase, hard Brexit now, looks so redundant. It's like, it is Brexit. It's like, you know, hard Brexit, it was seen, seen as an, almost an insult. Like, you know, only the real hardliners, the extremists want hard Brexit. Actually, the voters in their millions just wanted Brexit, any Brexit. Um, and we saw repeatedly in the polls that even as the, the misnomer of a no-deal Brexit, a lot of people prefer that. They just wanted to get out. So I think um, what I found interesting, on the night itself, a lot of us thought, yeah, he's got such a massive majority. Maybe he could do what Theresa May always wanted to do, get a big majority, then tack more to the soft, softer Brexit. But actually, I think he's he's absolutely a man of his word now. He's got to be. He's, he knows his whole reputation rests on that pledge not to extend beyond 2020. I mean, I think it's slightly bonkers in, in negotiating terms, but he's been proved right and we're wrong in negotiating terms. He says, look, you've got to be serious about this, otherwise the EU won't give, give any ground. And I suspect he'll stick with it. And I think he'll actually, come what may, we will be out. We'll have a free trade deal at the end of this next year. And it's a question of what shape it'll look like. And I think he's already, and the team around him, are building up sort of various scenarios. Well, if the EU does this, well, we'll do that. There will be a deal. And it's just a question of what it looks like. And I think it's a massive mistake to think he, he will tack to a soft Brexit and that he'll somehow, you know, cave at the last minute or that, you know, extend because he's writing into legislation. And he knows he's never going to win all those voters or keep those voters in the red wall if he changes his mind in any way. But Lee Johnson did cave to get his withdrawal agreement. He caved on his red line about a border in the Irish Sea. Does he risk creating another situation with the time pressure he's put on himself that he's going to have to cave on key UK demands in this round of talks? I think, I think he's a, to Paul's point. I think he's being sensible. You know, one, one, he said it. So the important thing is that you follow through. You know, the 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 British political class have had two or three major shocks in the last year, right? And and there was a huge cynicism which has grown up, which part of which was demonstrated last Thursday, which is people don't believe politicians, and that builds on expenses, it builds on spin, builds on Iraq, all that kind of stuff. And I and I sort of struggle to understand why it's a why it's a novel concept that actually politicians <laughs> need to sort of do what they say on the big things or have honest conversations with people about why things have changed and all the rest of it. But I think he is he is serious about it and he's rightly serious about it. One, from a negotiating position, I do hope that we won't go into another navel-gazing 12 months where we write about and politicians and journalists just go into this sort of symbiotic bad relationship where they just spend every moment talking about every uh, you know movement on, on Brexit when actually Actually, the reality is we're in the negotiating process and that negotiating process is going to take a number of months and we're not going to be clear until you know a certain point next year and let's just you know take a breath for a moment um, but I think he he is right to say it from a negotiating perspective but we've got to get on with this stuff and I you know I only chose to vote to leave five days for the election I wasn't involved in vote leave and all the rest of it and, and I, but once that decision has been made my view is that the hard Brexit that you were talking about is a Brexit which both honours the decision of the British people but gives us the opportunity to be able to make choices in the future and that was the problem with the May deal there was there were some choices that were being taken off the table so of course they'll need to be compromised of course they'll need to be changed of course we'll need to be pragmatic but I think he gets the fundamental and that's why he did so well last week. Can I ask sort of um, the election results showed sort of in Northern Ireland nationalists outnumber 
um, unionists for the first time. SNP vote went up massively. How does he strengthen the union and do Brexit at the same time? Yeah, I think I think that's a really important question, and, and it is one which, as a as a Midlandser MP, you know, quite a long way away from. It. I don't know if I'm the right person to ask, and you know, I, I regret very much um, a number of my colleagues who I'm very close to, Luke Graham and others who let, who've left Parliament, hopefully only temporarily, and we've got to find a way to try and bind the union closer together. I don't know if I have those answers, um, and I think it's important that politicians sometimes say we're, we're not sure, but there's a lot of work that needs to be gone into that because I think there is this disconnect, which people have tried on all political parts, in all political sides to try and bring it together, but it hasn't quite done that and more, more needs to be done. But by the same token, that doesn't necessarily mean indulging what certain parties are saying and you know allowing them to define what their mandates may or not may not be we've got to we've got to tread very carefully around the union and do you think on things like um, level playing field a lot of your colleagues will come to pressure from the media from everyone else to say actually if you don't agree to the eu's sort of alignment then trade's going to suffer jobs are going to suffer and actually um if if you abandon that, then you're storing up political problems in the long term because a lot of these voters might actually suffer who voted for Brexit. Or do you think actually, look, we're a big country, we can cope with our own version of these rules. There's a way around it. There's a sort of middle ground or a sort of pragmatic way of of having European rules without necessarily them being imposed on us. Well, I hope there's a pragmatic way around that. I mean, the the idea is if we have two economically rational entities that we can find a way forward when we're already in very close harmony and alignment by both respecting what we want to do and what the European Union quite rightly wants to do. Um, but I think the people, the, 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 the metropolitan bubble down here, and I don't like using those kind of things because they're people I went to university with, I know, and, you know, and I, I spent quite a bit of time down here in my 20s. You know, but the metropolitan bubble misunderstands what Brexit is. Brexit was a decision to change. It was not a decision about the intricacies of X trade deal or Y regulation and all the rest of it. And that's where we've lost the lost an understanding of what, what that 2016 decision was. That it you know, our, our political settlement wasn't working for some people around the country. And we've got to respect that people accept that change is going to happen. But, you know, I just go back to the same point. I, I, the reason I've been so frustrated with Parliament over the past three years is because we are debating effectively how quickly we grow and then how we get out and what the economic impact of that is. And I want to grow quickly and also minimise any economic impact when, when we leave. But ultimately, that will be completely dwarfed by automation and artificial intelligence and all that kind of stuff. We're talking here about a GDP change of, you know, in, in, in single digits and, and automation is up to 30%, right? So let's, let's flip this on the head and say, how are we prepared for all that kind of stuff, which is happening already, whether we like it or not, and big companies are making decisions, rather than focusing on something that we're really comfortable about, but actually is probably more of a footnote than the chapter heading. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And funnily enough, it's exactly the point that T. Blair made this morning. Oh, God. He did. <laughs> he said AI and, and automation, he said, no one's talking about this. We need to talk about this. The Labour Party needs to talk about a, a proper politics as a future politics. You can't go back to my old policy solutions. A Labour Party and any party needs to look at AI. And he said, we're not talking about it enough. So it's, maybe it? you and TB should have a chat. Really. <laughs> <laughs> but do you think that some of your colleagues, on a serious point, will actually, they'll, they'll, in the RG, will think it's actually a, a red line for them? If we, there's any European level playing field or alignment, they'll say, that's not real Brexit. That's not what where voters voted for, and they'll kick up a fuss. And therefore, the PM 
is quite limited in what he actually can do, even if he wanted to go down that route. And we're not convinced he is. Well, I think the there is a willingness to look at what comes forward. You know, we, we, we should we should wait. And, I mean, I'm not trying to dodge your question, but I think there is a genuine acceptance that we want to make something work here. And you've seen the ERG being willing to be pragmatic where it's needed. So I think within an appropriate framework, I think there is a there's a willingness to allow something to happen here. One, because we know we've got to move on. And two, because, you know, ultimately, we, you know, we, we've done this to death now. Now, of course, there will be different voices and all the rest of it. But I think Boris has just come off a extremely positive uh, you know, result, and I think he's going to have the he's going to have the space to work out how we plot a way forward, and then we can all look at whether it works. And um, I can tell you what, I can't wait to stop talking about trade deals. Exactly. <laughs> so boring. Just I didn't come into political journalism to write about bloody trade deals. Well. Can I just say that? It's so dull. I'm not a trade correspondent for the FT. We're all so dreary. Have, we're all going to have quite different lives uh, and, after this election. And this yeah. is a, not to bring my my constituency into it too much but this is exactly the point my constituency fell over in the 80s and 90s when mining left it and it wasn't quite sure what to do and it had some real hard times but then it made some it got it dusted itself up it stood up again and it's made some strategic choices about what it wants to employ people in and our strategic choices manufacturing and logistics and all the rest of it there isn't a huge amount of trade deals that are going to affect my constituency in the short term although it will do for some and actually we've got to make sure that we don't lose all the jobs out of logistics in the next 20 years because that's going to impact many many more people in northeast Derbyshire than whether we do a trade deal with india in 2020 or 2025 much as i would like to do it yeah, as early yeah. as possible yeah. so i agree with you let's talk more about you know <laughs> other stuff than just um, you know what the what the level playing field are going to be i thought it was interesting you saying you'd made your mind up five days before i think that's really interesting um because it's almost like you're like boris johnson boris weighed up the pros and cons famously two different columns in the telegraph uh and then Made, but the point was, once you make your mind up, you really—that's it. You know, there's there's no going back. It's like I've made my mind up, and I want to get on with it. Is that the, the thing that was really odd to me? Is I. I I don't understand why I've been characterised as a hard Brexiteer. And maybe this is me going, oh, where is me or whatever. But, you know, I, I, I made the decision to leave. I weighed it up. It was, you know, a heart versus head thing. But, I, but I'm just... I'm a Tory, right? I'm, in, I'm innately sceptical of grandiose projects. I, I think that the, the European Union has is done brilliant things but has got itself into a slightly odd place and is likely to move itself into that. But ultimately, if people make a decision to leave... I think you've just you've got to ensure that you have the pathway to take the opportunities that the new model that you are now going to move to offers. And the thing which just it was just it was so clear cut for a few of us when we were going through that MV one, two, and three was that you just couldn't do that with the backstop and with a political declaration. So, in what world could you end up with a place where you agreed that you might as well just stay in if if that's the case? And that that doesn't respect the decision. So. Yeah. You know, maybe it was too logical, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Not enough logic in politics. Rachel, what do opposition parties do now if second referendum's off the table? That's what they were all backing, pretty much. A good question. Because I, I think, like Paul was saying earlier, after after the end of January, what's the, what's the point in being a Remainer? What's the point in being pro-second referendum? I mean, I mean, people will look at the result for Joe Swinson and think there's an MP who tacked to the other end of the scale and got absolutely torn apart by the electorate so I think they'll probably focus a lot more on workers rights on um, environmental protections ethical trade um, those things going forward I don't think they'll be 
any people who were particularly wedded to the EU as an institution anymore. And I think the environment as well. Don't forget, I mean, John, I asked John McDonnell like three days before the general election. He was, uh, are you saying, just as in 97, Blair said there's 24 hours to save the NHS, are you saying there's four days to save the planet? And I was being slightly facetious, but he, he basically meant it. He said, yeah, we've got four days to save the planet. And it's like, uh, what's interesting now will be Boris, who's a natural sort of greenie in many ways, and his dad obviously influences all that. And, and uh, will he now actually treat seriously climate change or, or will he just do this sort of, act about what well, it's all about conservation and, and rhinos which actually is in my opinion not not necessarily central to, to <laughs> stopping the planet overheating um much as i love animals um but it would be really interesting to see whether or not there are people i mean i know um therese coffee so big on this and there's lots of people within the tory party who are saying actually we've got a good tory tradition on climate change and being scientific about it to pick up lee's point you know using technology and more importantly market solutions which labor was not interested in i think that's going to be the just as important as ai is i think the really interesting debate politically in the next few years is going to be how can we make a market work to to save the planet because non-market solutions seem to be for the birds they're not real um and so things like a carbon tax will there be a global carbon tax at some point should britain be pushing for one now taxes again are inherently a non-tory thing but the landfill tax for example in britain introduced under gordon brown and tony blair is possibly the single most effective environmental solution britain's had in decades because taxing councils saying it will cost you to dump this stuff in landfill to bury it in the ground it's going to cost you that revolutionized the way every one of us now puts stuff from our bins into different baskets because it's why because it costs them more money so they don't want to pay that if you can transfer that as some sort of market solution in terms of a carbon tax a lot of young people are looking at it on the right and on the left i think that could be really interesting yeah i i i completely agree i mean i, I remember going to a toy conference uh, 10 years ago and uh, during Cameron and, and it was Jeanette Winterson who'd been invited who is not necessarily <laughs> yeah. the most uh, you know conservative of commentators and she stood up and she told us some truths and she said you were the original party of the land you were the people who have conserve in your name and you should you should take this stuff seriously and Cameron to his credit did and Boris is doing the same and and the point that you're making about market-based solutions the thing which is I think frustrated those of us who believe in climate change who want to make a difference who want to tread lightly on the earth which I think is cross-party. You know, one we we tend to we tend to have done well in our country over the past. 10, 20 years on these issues when we've worked vaguely in a cross-party consensus where most people have signed up to it. And over the past six months or year, it's got into this bidding war of, of dates and arbitrary dates. I mean, I think the Labour Party's date was basically because one of their little groups just said, we want this date. And, and they went, oh, we can't do that, so we'll just add five years onto it. I mean, this is not the way to create public policy. You know, climate change is going to be solved by both behavioural change, which is the point that you made, and also market solutions. And we need to pump prime that market we need to make sure that market moves but we can't just pick arbitrary dates out of the air and, and it's and it's a baseless political debate to do that and it doesn't help anybody at the end of the day if you don't have those honest conversations do you think that's the way to do it then that this government should maybe explore looking at cross-party uh, solutions on climate change 
Well, I, I think we should work cross-party on all... I'm not, I'm not giving you a try answer to that. I think we should work cross-party wherever we can. Um, we've got to wait for some of our parties to come back closer to where you can have cross-party agreements on some of these things. But um, it would be great if, if it possibly could be. But you just... you know, I'll settle for not having completely artificial debates, you know, where there's this kind of like, we've got to decarbonise by 2025. I'd love to decarbonise by 2025, but I'll have your phone, I'll have your holiday, I'll have your, you know, your house, I'll have your car. I mean, let's have a proper debate about that stuff rather than just throwing numbers around because that doesn't help doesn't help people, it doesn't help decisions about voting, it doesn't help the planet at the end of the day. There's still quite a lot of climate change scepticism about. Do you think, given the victory that the Prime Minister's just run, he's got a, got a responsibility to sort of push people in the right direction and highlight how serious it is more? I think, I think Paul is absolutely right on this, to, to your question, that... Boris gets the stuff, and we're gonna we're gonna see it. We're gonna see it moving. But we've we've got to give the technology the opportunity to take take leaps here, right? As well as doing the government changes and the behavioural changes and things like that. And you've seen, I mean, you know, without sounding too much like a politician, you know, solar panel costs have come down by seventy percent. You know, wind winds now significantly getting better. Battery power is getting is better. All that kind of stuff. We should be we should be celebrating it rather than entering into the politics of false difference. You know, we're all we're all going down a, a road where we will get there. I, I get that there will always be disagreements about how quickly you do it, but we've headed in really a much better direction over the past 20 years since this was... It was only 30 years ago we were trying to fix a hole in the ozone layer. We weren't really talking about overheating, and now we, you know, we, we are turning our entire attention to that. I think it's a positive thing there. Interesting five years ahead, but mm. it's time for the quiz. Yay! We're going to look back <laughs> at look the election. Back. Oh, crikey. It's an election quiz, entirely devised by me towards this quiz. He's not allowed to give the answers because he knows them. I'm very afraid of it. Um, so just, uh, just shout the answer um, if you know it. That's all you need to know. Question number one. What did Jeremy Corbyn and Boris Johnson say they would give each other for Christmas during the first ITV head-to-head debate? Well, Johnson said he would give Corbyn some damson jam. Correct. Um, and... Um, oh, what did Corbyn offer? It was quite and, a good thing. And his it? Brexit deal, wasn't it? His bre- a copy of his yeah, Brexit you deal. You got Johnson, well. you got a point already. So, what did Corbyn offer him? Oh, God. I've, I've completely wiped it out from my brain, that debate. It was quite amusing. I can't remember what it was that he offered. Yeah. Do you want a clue? Go on. It clue. was a book. Was it a book? Was it. Um, it wasn't a book of walks in his constituency. Really like <laughs> what that. Is it a Christmas carol? Yes. Oh, Scrooge. Yeah. Well done, Paul. Yeah, yeah, got yeah, 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 yeah. Question number two. During the campaign, the Tories posted an hour-long video on YouTube featuring ambient music and Boris Johnson quotes. But what was it called? I thought it was Get Brexit Done, wasn't it? No. Isn't it, it the lo-fi? It's because th- my kids love it. It's the it's <laughs> oh, it's God. the lo-fi sound, Boris wave. Yes, because honestly, well it went like a, a viral meme that amongst all teenagers. So they the f- all they all saw it, whether they were Tory or not. They they got it was on all their phones. The, the full know. title is yeah, lo, lo-fi Boris wave beats to relax. It's actually slash really get cool. Brexit done to. You can listen to it. It's really cool. I had the wrong tempo to do the leaflets too. Final question. Who won more votes in Uxbridge and South Ryslip, Lord Buckethead or Count Binface? Oh, that's the real contest. Buckethead, surely. I'm guessing he has Binface. More profile. I'm guessing what, Binface. One of them put out, <laughs> one of them put out the most 
brilliant press release about it, but I can't remember which one it was. <laughs> so I'll go for the other bin face. You're going for bin face. Yeah, I'll go for bin face. It was Lord Buckethead. So Rachel, Hi, well uh, done, Rachel. Two, two zero. Zero. <laughs> uh, yeah, Can I Lord, just chuck in and after you've done this one? Go on, an extra question. Go on then. Go on. Uh, Lord, Lord Buckethead emerged victorious with 125 votes. <laughs> bin face is 69. But Binface was actually the original Buckethead, having been forced into a name change due to copyright dispute <gasps> with the creator of an obscure 80s sci-fi film called Gremloids. Uh, that guy, the creator, Dodd, Todd Durham, then endorsed a new Buckethead, who was played by a guy called David Hughes. That's amazing. Yeah. It's like the UB40 wars. Who was the real, <laughs> yeah. real UB40? Remember that? Now, here's the extra question. Table, I mentioned, tables, I, I mentioned this is yeah. good, this. I mentioned, um, what's he called? Uh, Chris Leslie lost his deposit, right? Three MPs lost their deposit last Thursday. Sitting MPs. They'd been the MP. They couldn't even get enough votes to win the majority, the, win the deposit. So who are the other two? Andrew we- Smith. Huh? Angela Smith. Nope. Williamson. Anna Subri? Chris Williamson. Chris Williamson. Oh. There speaks a Derbyshire man. <laughs> Anna Subri? Nope. No, she no. did all right. And there's one other. Which part of the country? I'll give you a clue. It's a Labour person. Oh, former Labour person. Uh, was it um, Mike Gapes? Nope. Think Northwest. Oh, Ivan Lewis. Yes. Ah. Well yeah. done, League. I think he gets a point for that. <laughs> I recovered it. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Because he, invited, he asked people to vote Tory and he was standing as a candidate. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, he stood and then sort of stood he down. Stood and then but he was didn't stand, but his name was yeah, on the ballot. Yeah, yeah. So Absolutely. there you go. Right. Uh, unfortunately, that's all we've got time for. Thank you to my guests for joining me. And make sure you subscribe to Common to People on all the usual channels so you can catch us every Thursday. And be sure to get your daily dose of the latest politics news by signing up to the Warzone newsletter at bit.ly forward slash the hyphen war hyphen zone or follow the link in the episode notes. Uh, We're just going to leave you with Marc Francois' assessment of what happened on election night. Russia's Berlin Wall came down. In 2019, Labour's Red Wall came down. But Labour's Red Wall is analogous to the Berlin Wall of a totalitarian state. Well, the... That was a very left-wing state. Is this result making you... I mean, are you slightly gone...? No, not at all. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.